Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Rasinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. You know, we always ask you to download the app, the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app, so that you can have access to all of our station's <clears throat> content. And if you like what Joe and I do, you can follow us two primary places on social media. Uh, the Frontline with Joe and Joe on YouTube, until they take us down, which I'm sure they will. Um, <laughs> and now that ostensibly uh, Twitter is an open platform, we'll see about that. We're, we're, bu we're building up our Twitter presence. You can find Joe and I, Joe and I at with Joe and Joe at with Joe and Joe on Twitter. We'd love for you to follow us there. Now today we are very pleased and honored to be joined by Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. Um, Joe and I always talk about going into the breach. Well, we're going into the breach. All right. We like to have conversations that maybe not a lot of people want to have. Maybe they're a little uncomfortable with maybe it kind of makes them uh, question their own positions. Well, this is one of them, we think. And we, and you'll, you all out there at the Veritas Catholic ne Network will f uh, find that out very shortly because Peter has written a new book that's out from Tan Books, The Once and Future Roman Rite, Returning to the Traditional Latin Liturgy After 70 Years of Exile. Joe, that sounds like we're going into the breach. What, what do you say? say? I would say. <laughs> I would think so. Uh, now, Peter Kwasniewski is very well known in Catholic circles. Many of you out there know who he is. Uh, with Joe and I, just we love to say that he is a fellow Jerseyan. Is it Jerseyan or Jerseyite? Um, both. I, I think either way sounds pretty good. Uh, but for those of you who are not familiar, Peter Kwasniewski taught theology, philosophy, music, and art history at various undergraduate and graduate institutions from 1998 to 2018, and has, a directed, uh, has directed choirs from 1994 to the present. Today, he is a full-time writer, speaker, editor, and composer known for his public advocacy of traditional Catholicism, especially in its liturgical sphere. His work has been translated into his at least 18 different languages. Peter Kwasniewski, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe, brother. Thank you so much for having me. And I should I should mention because people often ask me, how do you pronounce your last name? It's a little different. It's Kwasniewski. Kuznevsky. Okay. But, but but all my students and, and a lot of my friends call me Dr. K. So you could you could call me that if you want to. I tell you what, I'm gonna go the Dr. K route. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, but thank you. Thank you so much uh for being on the show, Dr. K. And with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Joe Resinello and we'll have a great conversation. We we always start with a prayer to our lady in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, for you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not of petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us, Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. <laughs> 
was Joe P mentioned, uh, Dr. K is a Jersey <laughs> guy. He went to Del Barton. Um, I went to Queen of Peace in North Arlington. Joe went to Seton Hall Prep. So Jersey is represented on this show. I love it. Um, I did a lot of research uh, in putting this uh, outline together, Dr. K. And I read, and I thought this was interesting, that while you were at Del Barton, you were deeply affected in your senior year by something you read. I believe it was by St. Augustine. You could please correct me if, if I am incorrect. Um, and it changed, you know, the trajectory of where, you, you know, you were going to go to school, how you thought about life. I, you know, just a little background, you went to Georgetown at first, um, and you left, you know, and, and frankly, you know, in the circles that I just mentioned, Del Barton, Queen of Peace, Seton Hall, uh, people who did very well would go to Georgetown. And I know many people that went to Georgetown. It's, 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 a, a logical step. You didn't take that. And I, I think that's kind of cool. Break us down, break that down. Uh, like what happened sure. to you at Del Barton when you read that book and, and, and where did you wind up going and how it influenced you moving forward? Right. right. Yeah. So, so it wasn't really just one book. St. Augustine was part of it. <clears throat> I took a class in senior year of high school, a philosophy, political philosophy class. But the difference was that the teacher of it, who was himself a Catholic convert, uh, he had us reading original sources, primary sources, great books. So we read some Plato, some Aristotle, some Augustine, and some uh, Thomas Aquinas, and, and among other authors, sort of passages from various authors. And the, I was deeply moved by these readings. I was very, uh, it had a huge impact on me intellectually. I mean, I was curious. I, I enjoyed reading. I read a lot of different things. It was almost like uh, I, I was very eclectic. I didn't really know what direction I was going in. Um, you know, I, you know what I mean? It just, it, no, I hear you. and, and uh, you know, like I had some, I had a Catholic side to me, but I was also kind of relativistic and modern. And I just didn't know what direction I would, I would be going in in life. And this class just made, it made a real um, ardent Catholic out of me. You know, when I, when I read these classic sources, first of all, the, the Greek philosophers, I thought, oh my goodness, they're making awesome arguments, right? They, they know what they're talking about. These are true arguments with reason behind them. And then I read the Catholic authors and I thought, these guys are on fire. You know, they, they, they really, I mean, the wisdom there is so deep, it's, it's inexhaustible. And it, it suddenly made me realize, and this was actually, I should say, the beginning of a process of realization that something had been hidden in Catholicism from from me i hadn't really encountered the sources of the faith um and and as the years went on that awareness grew in me i hadn't encountered the fathers and doctors of the church i hadn't encountered the great catechisms of the past i had not encountered the great liturgies of the past what i what i had grown up with was catholicism light so to speak right uh and and that's what so I went to Georgetown because my parents wanted me to go there and I had been accepted and I thought, oh, this is, I'll try this out. But in my heart of hearts, I really wanted to go to Thomas Aquinas College in California, uh, which my parents thought was a crazy idea. It was a tiny school at that time, you know, less than 200 students, really far away. You know, no, none of their friends had heard about it. What is this place? You know, but I went to Georgetown for a year and you know what? I, I mean, I met good people there. There were good things that happened, but overall I found the the campus and the academics a disaster from a Catholic point of view. Very secular, very worldly, very cynical. Just, I mean, I'm not going to give you particular examples, but, you know, like sex ed. I mean, just all, there was so much 
it was such an awful environment for, for a believing Catholic that I said to myself about halfway through that year, I said, I'm going to start over at Thomas Aquinas College, you know, come what may. My parents weren't happy about that. You know, they said, well, if you're going to go there, you have to pay your own way, you know, and, and so it, it led to some, some real, I mean, there was, a, there was some real conflict there in the family. But you know what, thanks be to God, uh, a year later, my parents came out and visited TAC. They, they thought, okay, well, he's there, we might as well visit and see what it's like. And they fell in love with the place. And they became donors of it. And you know, so anyway, so it had kind of a happy ending to that story. But um, I went to TAC because I wanted the great sources of thought, the great sources of literature, the great sources of theology, right? I wanted to be steeped in the best and the brightest. This is what I wanted, you know? Um, and that's really, in a sense, I, I, I was sort of like an intellectual traditionalist before I was a liturgical traditionalist, if that makes sense, you know? Well, let, let, let me take it a little bit further. Uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Dr. K, let me ask you a question. Um, Joe and I don't beat up on Protestants here at, at the front line with Joe and Joe, but sometimes they could be annoying. <laughs> and I say that respectfully, okay? Because what you just described, see, Catholics understand you know, God did not just reveal himself through scripture. Um, let me let me tell you where I'm going with that. And please tell me if you, you disagree. Take Logos for an example, okay? We believe in the Logos as Jesus Christ, okay? The Logos made, made flesh, okay? But that's a Greek philosophical concept that was around several hundred years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Yes. And, and the Sola Scriptura types out there, they seem to think that great books— and original sources, anything outside of Scripture is just not needed. It's 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 it's, it's just somewhere out there that may okay maybe you could dabble in a little bit, but all you got to do is read the Bible and you got the whole thing down. We don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. How important is it to study these great books as you describe oh. these primary sources in deepening our faith in Jesus Christ? Right. Well, I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to say that the Bible alone is all that you need. Um, to understand the truth or to understand reality, because, I mean, for the most basic reason is you first have to use your five senses, your memory and your imagination to come and your intellect, of course, to come to grips with the natural world as it exists around you, if you're going to understand anything that's talked about in scripture. Scripture is a book. It talks about the world that God created. God gave us access to the world he created through other means than than revelation. That's why that's why the uh, the Catholic tradition talks about the world of nature, the cosmos, as God's first book, God's first book. And his second book is the Bible, which interprets that cosmos for us and leads us on the right path. But even beyond that, right, God is the Lord of history. He's in charge of all of human history from Adam all the way down to the second coming of Christ. And that means he's also in charge of let's say, the rise and fall of philosophical systems and of empires, right? So he's going to use authors like Plato and Aristotle, who don't have a clue about the Hebrew prophets and don't know about Christ, but they do know something about reality and they use their reason well. And he's going to make use of them for later on when Christians are debating about theology, they're going to make use of the resources that Aristotle and Plato gave them, right? This is just being grateful to God's providence. You know, God is the one who gave us Plato and Aristotle, right? Not that they're right about everything, but they're right about a lot of very, very important things. Um, And, you know, similarly, the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire was pagan. They worshiped false gods. They persecuted the Christians for three centuries. And yet God used the Roman Empire for the ultimate 
triumph and spread of the gospel, right? How so? I mean, the most basic way is that the Romans built roads all over the world, thousands of miles of excellent roads that the missionaries used, right? Mm. <laughs> the apostles went on those roads, right? I mean, there, there's... Anyway, so the, so God is the Lord of history. We have to remember that. And and, and I'm glad you said that. I mean, because, you know, uh, people say, I always think that about Rome, okay? Like like Rome lasted a thousand years. But I think that's not the, the important thing about Rome. What's important about Rome is exactly what you said, is that eventually the Catholic Church used the structure that was set up <laughs> by the Roman Empire to spread the gospel. Yes. So obviously yes. The, the Roman Empire being a part of human history is, is under god's providence let's uh let's keep it moving dr k dr uh peter kuznevsky is joining us here at the front line with joe and joe we want to talk front line with joe and joe we want to talk about his book the once and future roman right returning to the traditional latin liturgy after 70 years of exile now tan books just uh, joe and i always say on this show tan books is an edgy publisher okay they will publish things that other publishing houses will not uh we encourage uh our audience to buy our authors' books from the publishers and support our Catholic publishers, even though you probably could buy it at companies we don't want to mention on this show. Um, but but Tan Books, you could buy the book there. Joe Resinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. How was your time in Wyoming? I asked that because coming from New Jersey, that had to have been quite a big jump. I mean, I've heard about Wyoming Catholic. It's on the Newman list. I have young children. I, I keep abreast of that list because that's where I want them to go to school, ideally, if not that stay local but uh what was your experience like there i i know that they have a great books curriculum um similar to the conversation we just had did you like your time there yeah so i well i i went to um after i left thomas aquinas college after i graduated and went to grad school at cua my first job was teaching in austria so i was in i was in europe for seven and a half years um but then when wyoming catholic college was founded um, I, I found out about that, uh, and I I, um, I was excited about what I read. My wife and I were thinking of coming back to the United States, and so to make a really long story short, um, I hit it off well with the three co-founders, and they hired me as the first faculty member at Wyoming Catholic College. So I went there in 2006, basically to help open the college to its first class of students in 2007. So I was I was there right from the ground uh, ground level. And um, yeah, and it was, it, it's an amazing place. I was there for 12 years. Um, you know, I still have very good friends there. I keep in touch with them all the time. Uh, my daughter attends Wyoming Catholic College. Uh, my son attended there. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful place. Great books, but with a lot of outdoor activities as well in the wilderness of Wyoming. That's I was awesome. going to say, if you're going to be in Wyoming, <laughs> there better be a lot of outdoor activities. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, tremendously, <laughs> obviously, people who have seen pictures or who have been there know Wyoming is a really, really beautiful place. Um, so let's, uh, Dr. K, let's go into the breach a little bit, okay? Let's start with Vatican II. Now, I'm going to give you generally what our, our view is of Vatican II here. We've spoken to a number of people, Professor Robert George from Princeton we've had on the show. We talked about Vatican II. We talked to a number of people, okay, that there are, here's our view in a nutshell, and then we want to hand it over to you. There's nothing wrong with Vatican II. There's nothing wrong with the documents of Vatican II, okay? Um, it is an ecumenical council, all right? Again, if anything I say that you can correct us on or you disagree with, please feel free, all right? And there's a lot to learn from the documents of Vatican II. But what happened afterwards, all right, even Robert George said that. He goes, the spirit of Vatican II is where, yes, the the those who I guess we would call the liberals in the church 
hijacked those documents, uh, used some probable, you know, um, instances of ambiguity in the language to basically exploit the documents to serve a different end, all right, or a particular goal. And that, uh, and that maybe we need to rethink this. So we're oh, Joe. The, here's in a nutshell: there is a church that existed before Vatican II, is what we would tell many. I guess you would call the liberals in the church. Okay, but yet to some of our more traditional friends, we would say, but you cannot discard Vatican II either, because because it is a council of the church, and there there are things that we need to learn from it. What do you think of that assessment that I just laid out? I mean, I would mostly agree with it. Um... You know, the, the important point to see is something that the late, great Joseph Ratzinger himself said uh, on, on many occasions, which is that not every valid council has been a successful council, right? Um, you know, the, the Second Vatican Council is the 21st, so there have been 21 ecumenical councils, and some of them were great successes, and some of them were flops, right? Um, this is just a fact. Uh, there was a council a Lateran council that ended in 1517, right before Luther's split, that accomplished absolutely nothing and did not respond to any of the real causes of the Protestant revolt that, that subsequently unfolded. Um, so a legally valid council doesn't mean a successful council, and we don't have to be wedded to the idea that somehow it's impious to say, well, okay, looking at it 50, 60 years later, it 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 basically didn't bear the fruits that were expected, that were hoped for. And in fact, a lot of evil fruits came, were occasioned by it, let's say. We don't have to say caused directly by it, but occasioned by it. And that, you know what? The world has moved on. We're in a very different world now from the world of 1963 to or 62 to 65. Uh, and the things that people thought were hot hot stuff back then maybe that's not what we need right now we need something different you know I, th I think you can see this with um i'll just say this very briefly you can see a lot of optimism about the post-world war ii situation in vatican ii documents that now when we look at it we kind of cringe because we we see how much worse things have become in the world and that the in a way the olive branch that the council was extending to the world you know, uh, was rejected, was was tra was trampled on the ground. Um, so, I mean, I'm not saying we need a Vatican III, God forbid, because right now the hierarchy is such a mess that Vatican III would be a mess too. But eventually there is going to need to be a reassessment and a new direction. I think that's partly what Pope Benedict XVI was trying to give by his efforts to reclaim aspects of tradition that had been forgotten or even held in contempt. Um, I think what he was trying to say, well, he said it himself in 1988, that Vatican II has been treated as a super dogma that cancels out everything that came before, when in fact it was merely one piece in a large history, all of which is important, right? Um, and that's the attitude that has become, I think, almost like a hallmark of traditional or traditionalist Catholics, even though it should just be a characteristic of all Catholics, that we say our entire heritage is valuable and important and deserving of respect and honor. And, and that seems, I'm going to hand it over to Joe. That's to me, I'll speak for myself as a very, to me is very frustrating when you ask or what, when one asks legitimate questions about the state we're in right now, that the immediate response is, well, if you look at Vatican II or well, we changed that at Vatican II or well, it's always, and I say, <laughs> okay, can we broaden our, our, our minds a little bit here? And, that, and that's my response, whether in, in conversation or on the show is well, and, 2000 also, years of tradition. Exactly. We, we also have to be really clear that probably 90 percent 
of what people attribute to Vatican II has nothing to do with either the documents of Vatican II or the bish or what the bishop said during the council. Uh, and I know this. And, and in fact, again, I'm sorry I keep mentioning Ratzinger, but you know he's very much up my mind these days as he is. Sure. Uh, but in 1976, he wrote a letter to Wolfgang Waldstein, uh, a great uh, traditional Catholic in Austria, uh, actually a great legal scholar. But he wrote him a letter, which was subsequently published, in which Ratzinger, and this is very early on, this is not even, this is 10 years after the end of Vatican II. Ratzinger says, I was present at all four sessions of the council. I heard every speech. I've reread every speech. I know the documents backwards and forwards. I can tell you that the liturgical reform that was done in the late 60s did not correspond to what the council asked for or what the council fathers asked for. Okay, that's pretty amazing. I mean, that's a very blunt statement. And he said mm -hmm. things like that in other contexts as well. So when you know people say, oh, mass should be in the vernacular and facing the people and with popular music and everything, none of that is in Vatican II. And the opposite is often in Vatican II, right? Mm -hmm. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're talking about his new book, The Once and Future Roman Rite, Returning to the Traditional Latin Liturgy After 70 Years of Exile. You could purchase that, and we would encourage you to do so at Tan Books. Joe Restinello. I want to highlight a lot of things you said that I absolutely agree with. It has bore <laughs> bad fruit. You, It's obvious. It has bore bad fruit. People aren't catechized correctly. Um but what a lot of people would say, and this is what I believe, that's not the documents. We've talked to Dr. Ralph Martin. We've talked to Father Gerald Murray. I am a firm believer in this, Dr. K, because I've lived this my life. Scripture tells us, I am the vine, you are the branch. When we adhere to the vine, we bear fruit. When we don't, we don't. Mm -hmm. We have to adhere to the vine. No one has a better idea than the church. No one has a PowerPoint presentation. No one has a program or a plan. Christ proves that in orders that are faithful. They thrive. And to be honest with you, a lot of the Latin mass goers, they're, they're thriving in all fairness. Um, with that said, what I want to just, if a better way to, to say is, is what we're seeing Vatican II? Ralph Martin says no. Dr. Gerald Murray said, uh, Father Murray, he's a canon lawyer, says no. I say no. I think it's been an ape of what it should be. I also believe, and I'm not a scholar, that it is in continuity, the documents with the church, the documents as they are written. The problem is they're not implemented. And I have a problem with the hierarchy for that. I say that respectfully. Um, what are you doing about it? You see, I don't understand that. I come from a corporate mentality where there is a definitive hierarchy. If a managing director and my managing director has global responsibilities, if someone does something in London and they're not using the right font on a report to break it down in a, a trivial manner, it's addressed. And if it's not, you're in trouble. You'll lose your job. Yes, yes. I don't get that. You, yeah. you, like, where am I wrong? Please, you know a lot more than I. <laughs> no, no, there, there's, I mean, there's clearly, what you're pointing to is the crisis of authority in the Catholic Church. Um, it's, it's a crisis of authority because there are very specific jobs that a pope is supposed to do that, <clears throat> frankly, our recent popes have not been very good at doing. The number one job that a pope has is to appoint good bishops and good cardinals, right? 
And the fact of the matter is, even John Paul II's record, Benedict XVI's record, is very mixed on that. Many of the worst characters in the church right now, including Cardinal McCarrick, or former Cardinal McCarrick, for example, were appointed by John Paul II, Benedict XVI. That, that is, you look at, you just have to look at the information and see that the governance of the church has been in shambles, even if these popes have written great documents, even if they were unequivocally pro-life, even if they were in favor of of giving Vatican II the best possible chance or reading, right? So there is a breakdown. And now, unfortunately, with the current Pope, it seems as if his authority is being wielded mainly against the groups of Catholics that are actually experiencing growth and revival, right? Uh, and, and that's just bizarre, right? That's like an autoimmune disorder, if I could put it that way, right? The body sort of attacking itself. But I do want to say one brief thing about Vatican II and the Vatican II documents. The problem with them, there is a problem with them, and that is that they are, they were committee documents basically workshopped by over 2,000 people. Um, they're full of compromises, and they, they have many ambiguous um, expressions, or they, 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 they offer opportunities for people to run with them in various directions, some of which are bad directions. And that's almost unavoidable with a large gathering that's producing consensus documents. That that is almost an, that, that's happened at earlier councils. I'm not blaming it. I'm not just limiting that to Vatican II. But to say that the council is completely free of blame, I think, would be putting it too 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 mildly. I think that there are aspects within the council documents that allowed for the exploitations to take place. They shouldn't have taken place and they wouldn't have taken place under better leadership, but they did take place and they could still be in some loose way pegged onto the council. So I guess I'm just pointing out that we shouldn't go to the opposite extreme and, and say the council is completely blameless and it's only what the, what the rogues did afterwards. Well, the rogues were involved in the council and, and, you know what I mean? So the same people implemented it as were involved in it. So there was a kind of, you know, uh, th there definitely was a modernist or progressive or liberal tendency that showed itself at the council. And then it just kind of exploded out of the, you know, out of the corrals afterwards. Dr. Right? K, before the break, we have a couple minutes yeah. before the break, that modernist impulse, that, that progressive um, mindset, is that what Paul VI was referring to when he said the smoke of Satan has entered the church? Or, or, or maybe clarify that. I know it's a larger question that you can answer in two minutes, but just before the break, uh, maybe comment on that a little bit. I mean, yes. I mean, Paul VI is himself a very complicated figure because he seemed to, his left hand was traditional and his right hand was 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 very modern and progressive. So he kind of went back and forth depending upon what the subject was. But I think what even he, as as much of a, as as much of a liberal as he was in some respects, and he, and he and he was. People forget that because they only think about humane vitae, which makes him seem like a hidebound conservative, right? But as much of a liberal as he was, even he was shocked at the absurd, heretical things that theologians were spouting off in the 1970s, right? I mean, that that is, he thought he thought it was a good idea to kind of open the windows of the church and to engage in dialogue with the modern world and to have ecumenical relations. And he thought all this was a good idea until he saw that what people did with it, right? And and the and and how they abused 
uh, this idea. I mean, they didn't just open the window. I mean, they just kind of capitulated, you know, uh, and surrendered to the worst tendencies of, of the modern world, like Marxism, you know, all these theologians who suddenly were spouting Marx instead of Jesus Christ, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. So I think, I think the smoke of Satan is just the overall theological, catechetical, liturgical anarchy and chaos that P- Paul VI saw, uh, for which he was partly responsible but I, you know, I'm not going to say like a conspiracy theory person that he desired it, but he was partly responsible for creating the conditions for this chaos, in particular because he didn't discipline people. He, he lamented, but he didn't whack them down. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're going to take a quick break. We are discussing. We laid the groundwork uh, in the first half hour for the conversation about his book, The Once and Future Roman Rite. We want to talk about the mass uh, returning to the traditional Latin liturgy after 70 years of exile. That's available at Tan Books. You're listening to us at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Um, And remember, download the app, share it with your friends and follow Joe and I wherever you see us on social media. Now stick around. We have another great segment with Dr. K. We'll be right back. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Welcome Network. back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Rissinello. We are way in the breach today on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network with Dr. Peter Kuznevsky, uh, Dr. K. Um, and we're talking about his book, The Once and Future Roman Rite, Returning to the Traditional Latin Liturgy After 70 Years of Exile. That is available at Tan Books. Joe Rissinello, where do you want to go? Dr. K, this is such an important conversation, if you ask me, and this is why people should go and buy this book. It's so important, really, because because to be truthful with you, I think there's a lot of confusion, and as you said, we're not getting the clarity that we need. Um, In the book itself, you note a chapter which states the laws of organic development and the rupture of 1969. What do you mean by that? Yes. So what I'm trying to do in that chapter and really throughout the book Uh, is to explain to readers, um, many of whom will not encounter this in any other form, right, from the pulpit or in their Catholic newspapers or whatever, I want to explain to them the way in which the liturgy developed over all the centuries of the Catholic Church, over the 20 centuries in which the Catholic Church has been worshiping God liturgically um, in in the formal public solemn worship. That's what we mean by liturgy. Um, And I, I want to explain that there are patterns that help us to understand how the liturgy developed as it did, why it grew, how it grew, and more importantly, the ways it didn't change. That is to say, the 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 intrinsic value that was seen in holding on to what our forefathers have already given us. Right. So basically think of it this way, right? It's a good a good analogy is to think about the way Gothic cathedrals were built. A Gothic cathedral was built over in the Middle Ages over many decades, sometimes even many centuries, each group of workmen, each architect, each team, um, each generation contributing something new, something distinctive to the beautification of this building. But all of it was compatible. It was all in some kind of grand 
style that was appropriate to a house of God, a temple of worship. Uh, and, and so although many people worked on it, it's sort of one collective great project that is ultimately beautiful and glorious. That's the way the liturgy grew up too. It started small like an, like an acorn, and it ended up as a great oak tree after many centuries. But each, each generation of Catholics, they didn't say, well, we need to invent a liturgy for our own time or our own generation. No, they said, we're going to do just what our forefathers did, and we're going to add some bell and whistle to it. We're going to add something beautiful to it, like putting another ornament on the Christmas tree. You know, uh, So there's always this very conservative attitude towards tradition. That's just a fact, and I show it in a, in a, in a lot of different ways in the book. And what's so um, disturbing about what happened in the 1960s, culminating in 1969, with the uh, issuance of a brand new, radically new missile, is that that attitude of conservative, uh, of, of conservative love and reception and appreciation of tradition was lost, it was shattered. There is so much that was rejected and so much that was invented that it's, it's the first time, it's unprecedented, it's the first time in church history that there's basically a new liturgy. Right, a new rite. That's not something you can say of any other moment in the 20th century history of the Catholic Church. Well, you're saying that but you use the word rupture. No, yeah. so you, you. But basically, what you're saying, Dr. K, is it, it's a it's a complete departure from what came before, or maybe not complete, yeah. but it is a a distinct break. It's not an organic yes. development. Exactly, it's not it's not an organic development in any way. Um, and you know, I quote a lot of authorities testifying to this, but one of them, Father Gelino says that at most the new liturgy it, it 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 deconstructed the old liturgy into a lot of pieces and it takes up some of those pieces and incorporates them into the new structure so like it is so in other words it tore down the gothic cathedral to use my metaphor and it built a new very modern church but it's stuck in some of the pieces from the old gothic cathedral okay uh that's what we're talking about so a deconstruction and a reconstruction and just to give you a concrete example because people want facts they they don't just want airy talk i'll just give you a concrete piece of, of information the the prayers in the old missile they're called orations that's the technical term for them and it, it's the three most important prayers the 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 collect, the secret, and the post-communion. These are three pivotal prayers in, in, the, in any mass. Then they're found in every mass. Um, the, the new missile of Paul VI takes over unchanged only 13% of the orations from the old missile. Only 13% of the old orations that Catholics had prayed for over a thousand years, in some cases, 1500 years or more. Only 13% of those were taken over unchanged. Another half of them were completely discarded, and the rest of them were edited and redacted, okay, and, and changed for basically what I would call political correctness, you know, toning down penance, toning down uh, anything, you know, too negative, and putting in sort of modern values, okay? This is just a fact. It's all been researched, right? This is, I'm not making this up, right? Uh, and so when you look at something like that, how can you not call it a rupture? Right. Let me let me touch on that, because you say man is not the master over divine liturgy, and you're basically echoing that through those examples. Um, and and please correct me if I'm wrong. You're basically stating that that's how the documents are written, as in that's not a spirit of Vatican II. That is how it was constructed for the new mass. Yes. But I will say this, though. <laughs> the pope is the pope. OK, at the end of the day. And. 
if the Pope, say, makes that redaction, is he wrong? Like, like for instance, you know, the popes over the centuries, and I'm throwing this out at, at you as, because I was always taught this from my father. My father was a barber. I, I you know, my, my family has not been here a long time. They come from Southern Italy. Um, you listen to the pope. My father always said that to me as a young boy. The pope has authority and God works through the pope. Even when the pope makes a mistake, I've learned that through working with religious orders, superior. If a superior makes a mistake, God will work through that superior. For instance, we chose Barabbas. We crucified God, you, me, and Joe. All of us, the world, sinners, said you. But God worked through that and created a church. You know, like my point is this the Pope is the Pope. And if he is going to craft this document, to me, there is some authority to that. Your yeah. answer think, to that. I think, we, I think we need to be very careful, though, to recognize that there are limits to authority and limits to obedience. Um, I mean, this is something I do touch on in Once and Future Roman, right? I talk about it more in a little book called True Obedience. Uh, published by Sophia Institute Press. Um, no, there really are limits. That is, author human authorities are not unlimited in the power that they have, in the power that they have to to command, to 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 create, and to destroy. Um, Saint Paul says power is given for edification, not for destruction. So one of, I mean, there's a there's a there is never a case in the history of the church where a pope has essentially buried a traditional right of the church and tried to replace it with another one. Why is that the case? Because they didn't think that they had the authority to do that. They thought it would be wrong for them to do that. Um, as far as obedience is concerned, the same thing is true. Blind obedience is not a Catholic idea. It is true that subordinates should be obedient to their superiors, but only in accord with divine law and natural law and with actually ecclesiastical tradition. Ecclesiastical tradition, immemorial, venerable ecclesiastical tradition has weight, has has a profound weight to it, right? Um, many of the things we do as Catholics are based on custom, are based on tradition. And the Pope is a guardian of those things, not a total master over them who can do with them as he pleases. The liturgy is not the Pope's toy, right? I, I would agree with everything you, you said. Smash it, you know? So, so the, there, there is the, it is a delicate question because Catholics... Catholics do have a rightful respect for the Pope. He is our father. He is our superior. Um, unquestionably, I'm not denying that. So there's a, but there's been in the past, especially I would say 150 years, there's been a, a tremendous growth of what I call kind of, I call it hyperpapalism. That is to say, an exaggerated notion of the Pope, where the Pope becomes almost the be all and end all of Catholicism. Like, we can't know what the Catholic faith is apart from what the Pope says. Well, this, 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 this runs against the rocks, right? For example, if a Pope comes along and says, the death penalty is illegitimate, it's contrary to the gospel. And then you look at the fact that for 2000 years, the Popes have taught something different. And the church has taught something different, and scripture teaches something different. Well, it, in that case, I think this the, the Pope who says that the death penalty is illegitimate is wrong, right? And so we have to be able to, we have to be able to, to see that in at least extreme cases, a pope can be gravely wrong about something. Well, we could talk about the death penalty because that's interesting too. Um, 
my understanding of that from John Paul was the window was open this much for basically countries like, say, like Mexico. I'm not picking on Mexico, where there's corruption. And say you have a serial killer and he's going to go to jail for life, but he's going to bribe his way out and he's still a threat to society. So in a situation like that, the death penalty would be legitimate. But I would argue, Peter, that in America, because of our prisons— there should be no death penalty in America. Well, we can we can have we can have a disagreement about the prudence of applying the death penalty. That's not really what this question is about. The question is about whether there's something illegitimate in itself about the death. No, penalty. I, I get I get what you're that's saying because I've also read his yeah. document on that. It's unclear, and that's Francis. Is my beef with Pope Francis is his lack of clarity. Right. Like there is a lack of clarity, and I also write policy. I write it for a bank, and policy can be purposely ambiguous. I'm not saying yeah. he's done that. Well, but what I am saying is reverting back to what you said about Vatican II. When you want wiggle room and you don't want to get cornered, and I do this, so I know what I'm talking about, you write something instead of saying, I need something in three days. I need something, you know, you use terms <laughs> that could make it, you have some elbow room. Sure. Yeah, and you know, in Pius the Tenth famously said in a document called Notre Charge Apostolique, uh, he said, the, the, the true friends of the people are not the innovators, but the traditionalists. This is the first time that the word, this is the first and I don't know, maybe the only time that the word traditionalist appears in a papal document. Okay. Um, my, the point I want to make about that is when Catholics had this ultramontanist tendency to go along with whatever the Pope says, just like your father told you to do. Um, that was a safe instinct when popes were themselves conservative and traditional, right? That is when they were when they were good popes, when they did what popes were supposed to do. And so if you have a Pope like Pius the 12th, to, to take one example, who condemned some of the aspects of the liturgical movement and said they were wrong to try to get rid of black vestments. They were wrong to try to make tables instead of altars. They were wrong to, uh, to, try, to want to put everything into the vernacular. Then the instinct of the Catholic would be, hurrah, Pope Pius XII has just clarified for us, you know, that, that it's good to be, to adhere to tradition, you know? And so the cognitive dissonance that results in the church, and we're still suffering from this more than 50 years later, and especially because of more recent events too, there's a cognitive dissonance in having later popes seeming to turn against the same things that earlier popes praised so highly. How is that rational? How is that, how does that make sense for a Catholic? We say our faith is based, is, is not, is harmonious with reason. Right. So the Pope should not be contradicting one another. And we see I, like, I, I would we, agree with you. I, I, just want, yeah. I just want to make a comment on that because I think you're I, I understand what you're saying. There has to be a continuity, clearly. You know, and I'm not a scholar, you know, I'm not gonna pretend to be one. But what you're saying though, there's a danger, and this is what I want to touch upon. <laughs> the danger is this who gives you the authority? Meaning Anyone, there is Christ on the chair of Peter, authority is given. I believe in the church. I believe in that chair. Yeah. There is authority. And I believe there's also a special grace given to the Pope. Now, I am not a scholar. I am not going to, I can't debate with you regarding the continuity. I don't know enough. But what I do know is I have faith in this church. I have faith in that chair. Yeah. And the authority to say 
that the church or a pope is not correct could border what Luther did. Everything Luther said was right, but he got out of the boat. He left the boat. Many of the, the 95 theses were correct, 100% spot on, but he went about it the wrong way. The church is perfect. You don't fix the church. You renew her. Yeah, so so that's all fair, but but the fact that the church is indefectible doesn't mean that an individual pope is always going to be right. And history, church history, just shows us that that's not the case. Um, I mean, it, it shows it, certainly the papacy. There have been two hundred sixty-six popes, and a very large number of the popes have been saints. Um, a, another large proportion of the popes have been basically good popes, and then some minority of the popes have been really awful popes. And not just morally speaking, but sometimes in terms of doctrinal issues as well. This is There's a book that I want to just throw out there, Roberto de Mattei, Love for the Papacy and Filial Resistance to the Church. Yeah, we interviewed him. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to recognize that it's not as simple as just slapping an equal sign between Christ, the Church, the Pope. That's that's the only point I want to make. If we do that, we're going to end up contradicting ourselves in very awkward and painful ways, and we won't be able to explain history. Right? We're, we're, going to, we're going to sound like fideists who are just turning a blind eye to the full range of data. Right? We, that's not what we're supposed to do. The, the, the Pope is an authority under Christ and under the duties of the office that he inherits, right? So he has real responsibilities, just like any authority does, right? He's not an absolute monarch whose will is law. That's a quote from Ratzinger, by the way. So. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing his new book, The Once and Future Roman Rite, returning to the traditional Latin liturgy after 70 years of exile. That's out from 10 books. So here's like the $64,000 question that a lot of people ask Dr. K, okay? Um, is the Novus Ordo valid? Is the sacrament, Jesus, you know, the, the consecration um, of the Eucharist, uh, is it valid? Because, you know, there, there's people ask that question. They say, all right, there's all these criticisms in the Novus Ordo and and legit. Nobody say, you know, like a lot of people say they're, they're legit. I have I have a lot of beefs um, with, with the Novus and I attend Novus Ordo Mass. But I there's some things that I see that I go like this. I go, oh, what, you know, what's going on here? Yes. But that's the main question that I th that I've heard people ask is, well, it, is sure. is the Eucharist valid? And I, I think I think that um, I think that the reason why people worry about that is because they don't yet know that there's more to the mass than just the question of validity. Validity is the bare minimum that we're looking at with a sacrament. Validity means did it happen? Did a sacrament happen? That's all that validity means, right? And and from that point of view, absolutely the Novus Ordo is valid and practically every traditionalist agrees with that. There are some fringe figures who might not agree with that, but practically all of us have no problem saying the Novus Ordo is a valid form of mass. In other words, the Eucharist is confected, the body and blood of Christ come to be present, and we can receive them in Holy Communion, right? Okay, great. But there are other dimensions of liturgy too. There's the dimension of licitness. That means, is it being offered lawfully um, according to its rubrics and according to church authority? And there's the question of authenticity, which means, is this a liturgy that's in continuity with the way the church has worshipped in the past? And then there's the question of fittingness, which has to do with things like, are the vestments beautiful? Is the music appropriate? Is there incense? Are there bells, right? That is, these are things that don't affect the validity, but they do affect the fittingness or the suitability of what we're doing, right? And so once you think about it in terms of 
valid, licit, authentic, and fitting, a liturgy should have all of those qualities, right? Not just validity. Um, just, just to put it differently, right? We can imagine a valid mass that was nevertheless full of sacrilege and blasphemy, right? We could imagine that. It happens in Chicago on a pretty regular basis right? from the videos that I've seen, right? <laughs> and, and so it's a valid mass, but it's displeasing to God in other respects because of the way it's being offered, right? Um, similarly, you could have a gorgeous high mass with chant and incense and vestments, deacon, subdeacon, but it's being done by high church Anglicans, and no Eucharist happens because they don't have valid orders, right? So in, in, in one extreme, they're doing all of the right stuff, but they don't actually have the sacrament. And in the other case, they have the sacrament, but they're doing all the wrong stuff, okay, mm -hmm. around it. And so I think it's helpful to kind of broaden the consideration like that and try to think about all these different angles. Right? I think that's fair. And, and I mean, you I do too. I, I, I haven't, no, I but haven't I, I also quite, want, quite I, put that way. I, I, but the thing is, I, I think the sacrament is the sacrament. And, and we all agree. But I think when we use the term licit or valid, that's a dangerous, again, there's one could interpret that in many different ways. I would go again to the documents, <clears throat> the Novus Ordo as it's written in the documents. For instance, uh, the priest should face the tabernacle as it's written in Vatican II. It doesn't take place. Mother Angelica tried to do that in e EWTN. The bishop wouldn't let her. Um, Latin is supposed to be used. If you watch an EWTM mass, it is used. It's They use the vernacular, but Latin is also in, incorporated. Again, I'm not a scholar of the documents. Right. What I would say is this. When you start using that, is it licit? Is it valid? I think that's dangerous because the universal church would strongly uh, disagree. They would say, as per that document, the mass is valid. The mass is licit. Are there better ways to do it? Are they following it? No. Absolutely not. They should never taken away the uh, altar rail. Again, I'm not a scholar. I'm just throwing some things that yeah, I do well, know. I'm just I'm just pointing out that these are four different questions to ask. No, a hundred percent. I but this, when, this, when this, one this, focuses because the thing is, I think what could happen, Peter, and and this is like we talked to the Exodus ninety folks. Like the mass is about Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ, and I've seen this like in in Catholic chats. People get can get lost in things, like as Ratzinger did say in his 1969 uh, radio address. He said the mass is not a subject of liturgical scholarship. Well, not the mass, the faith in faith and prayer. She will again recognize the sacraments as the worship of God and not a subject of liturgical scholarship. If we, well, we so, like it almost so becomes let, an idol. But let me let me push back a little bit on you. No, please, please. The, the the reason we have the liturgical crisis, and Ratzinger himself said this, is because a bunch of scholars were in charge of the reform process. Agreed. And, and they implemented their own vision of what modern man needed, which turns out not to be what modern man needs, um, or at least in large part, not what he needs. Um, and more, more to the point, right? Of course the mass is about Jesus Christ, but that's the reason why the tradition developed as it did. That's why communion on the tongue kneeling developed, to pay more homage, more reverence, more humility, more self-denial, self-surrender. That's why the beautiful vestments in churches were developed, right? Everything that goes with the traditional mass, I would say, 
developed over time precisely because of the ardent faith people had that Jesus Christ was really present and that he's the king of the universe and that he deserves the very best we can give him in our, in, in our prayers, in our artistic homage, whatever. Um, and the problem is that the reformers dismantled a lot of that stuff. Did they not believe anymore or was their belief somehow watered down or did they have a weird theory? I mean, for example, some of the reformers thought that there was too much emphasis put on the real presence and that we needed to put the emphasis on Christ present in the people, in the congregation. Okay, well, it's true that Christ is present in all of us in a certain sense, and that when we come together at Mass, we are the body of Christ. That's true. St. Augustine says that. It's a traditional view. But to pit that against the cult of the Eucharist, to pit that against the worship, the adoration, the latria that should be given to the Holy Eucharist is a, is a huge disaster. And that's what has led to the Pew research results, right, that show that a majority of mass-going Catholics don't believe in the real presence. In oh, this it's, it's, it's hard. Joe brings that up on the show all the time. It's right. just, it's it's horrible. So my point is, it, it might sound like somebody like me, a traditionalist writing about the liturgy, that I'm a scholar and I'm saying, you know, we should we should throw everything in turmoil again and we should go back to the way it was done before. And, you know, maybe I'm not focused enough on the essential thing. No, it's because I'm focused on the essential thing, at least I hope I am, that I advocate for the restoration of all of these traditions because those traditions are what nourished and made the faith of Catholics in the real presence of Christ last and endure over so many centuries. Dr. K, uh, Dr. Peter Kuznevsky is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Uh, We have a few minutes left. Let's let's stay on this for a second, okay? Let's stay on your call to return to the traditional right. Um, Obviously, we have traditionis custodis, and and quite frankly, a lot of people are are upset with that document uh, because they feel like the Latin mass is being taken away from them, that it's in direct contradiction to Samorum Pontificum uh, from Pope Benedict XVI. Um, Let's, because in the interest of time, Dr. K, here's my question. Is is a return to the Latin mass, the traditional Latin mass, is it something that could be done abruptly given, let's say, for you, you in the in the subtitle of your book, you say it's been in exile for 70 years. Okay. Is it something that could be done abruptly? Or is it something that increasingly over time we could begin to introduce all the traditional elements of the mass? We see it in many Novus Ordo parishes where there's more Latin. Uh, where there, there, there's more tradition, there's an altar rail, okay, where priests are, be- are, are offering more traditional and, or let's say reverent liturgy. Is it something that's going to occur over time or is it something that can be done abruptly? I know that's kind of a big question with only three minutes left in the conversation, yes, yes. but let me throw that <laughs> over to you. <laughs> sure. Well, this much I can say for sure. Pope Benedict's vision was exactly what you outlined. Uh, well, I should say his vision was that he, he, he created the unique legal structure. It's a legal structure. It's a kind of fiction in a way, but that's not a bad thing necessarily. He created this unique situation where there were to be two forms of the Roman rite, which is something that has never happened in church history before, simultaneously running side by side with freedom of priests and people to go to either one. And his hope, as he put it, was that a mutual enrichment would occur so that Whatever good qualities there would be, there are in the one would influence the other in a, in a positive way. Basically, like a rising tide lifts all boats, right? That was his concept. And he was hoping for a long-term peaceable solution, right? Not a top-down bureaucratic imposition, because he saw that that actually causes a lot of fractures and a lot of hard feelings and hurt feelings, but a 
gradual process that basically he trusted in the faith of the faithful and in their freedom to do something more organically, if I can use that expression again. The problem with, of course, Pope Francis is that he just simply came down like a ton of bricks. And I mean, when you analyze it, right, it's not because the traditionalists were behaving so badly. It's because their views, which are largely Benedict's views, don't align with Pope Francis's views and that of the progressives who are now in charge. So the liturgy was kind of a symbol of that resistance and it, and he's trying to crush it. Well, in doing so, he's just set back the whole process that, that Pope Benedict started. He set it back for who knows how many years. What it would take is a future Pope who would actually flex his muscles somewhat to finally correct the abuses in the new right, which no Pope has effectively done, um, to reintroduce traditional practices as Cardinal Seurat has recommended and has happened with the Anglican Ordinariate Liturgy and to keep promoting the freedom of the traditional right. That's what it would take from a future Pope. Am I hopeful we'll get a Pope like that? I, I am hopeful. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know if we're going to live long enough to see it, but I cannot imagine that the Lord would allow this situation of rupture, of fragmentation to just continue forever. That, that doesn't make any sense. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, we could talk to you for a long time. Yeah, I know. And this welcome, is a very good conversation. You're welcome back on, on this show anytime, brother. Well, real quick, tell our audience, what do you have going on? Where can they follow you on social media? And what else do you have in the works? Yes, um, I'm. so I, I've never gone on Twitter, but I am on Facebook, so you can find me on, on Facebook very easily. Um, I have a website, peterkwasniewski.com. Uh, I, have an, I, I run a publishing company called Osjusti Press, O-S-J-U-S-T-I, uh, dot com. You can find that some some neat things there available uh, by other authors. Uh, and uh, right now, I have a book coming out from Tan, another book from Tan in June, called "Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence." Uh, so that's that's going to be a big book about music, which is very dear to my. Well, heart. please well, come we're going to have you back to talk about that book. I, I hope you want to come on. <laughs> And like I said, you're, you're welcome back here anytime. This was a great conversation. Very enlightening. Joey and I say on the show all the time, we have on people that know more than us, not for our audience, even though that's important, uh, but for us too, you know, because we, we're, we're humble. It's not false humility. We don't know everything, and we learn as much, and we learned something from you today, Dr. K. Thank you so much for coming on the show. God bless you. Thank you so much. God bless. All right, and thank you all out there for joining us on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith in the New York City metropolitan area. Download the app, share it with your friends, and wherever you see Joe and I on social media, please like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff. Follow us on Twitter. Um, and remember, until the next time, that our conversation is your conversation, and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.